Spread Great Ideas is meant to increase the signal in a world awash in noise. I'm your curator and host, Brian David Crane, and it is my quest to share the learnings of the world's most interesting people, the disruptors, the outliers, the libertines, and those who've been unconventionally successful so that we can become a little bit wiser together. Please welcome Guy Smith, a 25-year gun control policy researcher and the founder of the Gun Facts Project. He's also the author of Guns in Control, has appeared on Fox News, Al Jazeera America, and is a frequent talk radio and podcast guest where he shares his team's learnings from conducting database investigations into criminology, public safety, and constitutional law. The slogan for the Gun Facts Project's project is, we are neither pro-gun nor anti-gun. We are pro-math and anti-BS. And Guy personally is not a quote-unquote member of any organization, not the NRA, not Every Town for Gun Safety, not the Second Amendment Foundation, not the Brady Campaign, nada, not even any political party. Someone once bought him a membership in the California Rifle and Pistol Association, and he immediately demanded to be removed from the membership roster. Let's hear what Guy has to say. Okay, Guy, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. you. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Tell me, um, tell me a little bit about your journey into starting Gun Facts. I've read on your site the the cheat sheet. What's the uh, what's 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 the impetus for the uh, for your for your research here? Well, the impetus is twofold. I, I was raised in a family of engineers and scientists. My dad was one of McNamara's whiz kids. I'll give you an idea as to uh, how I was brought up, particularly in terms of you know critical thinking and uh, fidelity to uh, scientific pursuits. So somewhere along the way, I just started to get interested in uh, the topic of gun violence. And it happened one night when I was watching the evening news and whatever talking head was on that particular network said that we had this national epidemic of gun violence. And in the town that I grew up in for you know close to 20 years, no one had ever been shot except for one woman, and that was a crazed woman wielding a knife attacking a cop and the cop had to shoot her out of self-defense so i right away i was going okay people are telling us this is a national epidemic but that doesn't play true where i live why the difference what explains you know this uh disconnect in perceptions. Well, like any rabbit hole, once you start to dig into that one piece of data, you start to become over overwhelmingly consumed by the topic. And um, I would gather my notes together and, uh, you know, rapidly fell into this pattern of listening to the public discourse and saying, no, that's not right. No, we, we, you've got to get a better handle on the situation. Putting all of this stuff into a cheat sheet. And then one day I shared the cheat sheet with a friend and he echoed back and he said, this is phenomenal. Do you mind if I share this with somebody? I said, yeah, go for it. I don't care. And about a week later, I had gotten five inquiries from people. I did not know who he did. And they said, Hey, can you put me on your distribution list? I said, I don't have a distribution list, but I guess I'll start one. Then somebody said, ah, I don't have MS Word. Can you do that in a PDF? Well, okay, I'll do it in a PDF. Well, one thing led to another. 25 years of digging into the data and assembling it in a way that 
not only shed new light on the subject, but you know, clarified routine issues that kept popping up in the public discourse became valuable to people. So I set the mission of let's have a source that is not aligned with anybody for any reason. And we will gladly take pot shots at, you know, pro-gun factions, anti-gun factions, and get the cleanest, most simple to understand information in front of the public and in a copyright, uh, nearly copyright-free way so that people can share it and actually have an informed discussion, which up until we came along, I don't think was happening. And 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 when you look at what's happened with gun facts in terms of how people have responded to it. Is there a sense of mm, that like it's worked? Like, do you see that um, when you, yeah. Do, do you feel like your efforts have been worthwhile? Right. So this started as uh, I would say a hobby or an interest of yours, not really a hobby, but like, you know, it started here, you share it with a friend, that friend shares it with five, you start the distribution list. You, you continue to kind of like, let's say pull on a string different pieces of the um yeah the string leads different places for lack of a better analogy and now having been at this for 25 years and written two books on it in in both in terms of i would say gun policy and criminology specifically and then also in terms of the propaganda or the framing around gun policy do you feel like it's been effective? Do you feel like gun, you know, gun facts has hit uh, hit its mark? I think it's hit its mark, but it's you know a Sisyphean process. Uh, the people who are <laughs> ideologically driven one way or another are never going to give up. They will find whatever propaganda means they have in order to try to achieve their end goals, whatever those end goals are. But I think we came along at the same time that the American public started to walk away from the two major parties. There is in America something called the walk away movement. And if you look at Gallup polls uh, trending chart on party affiliation, you'll see that most Americans are like me. Uh, we don't belong to a political party. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of gun violence, a lot of people absorb things from gun facts and maybe other sources, and they quickly came to the realization that a lot of the memes that they were hearing and still hearing just simply weren't true. And because of that, they take a more educated and nuanced. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one great example. My book that came out in 2020, Guns in Control, my favorite Amazon reader review uh, and I don't think I'm paraphrasing at all here. He said, uh, I was in favor of gun control before I read this book. I'm in favor of gun control after I've read this book. But Guy showed me that a couple of policy points that I was advocating weren't going to have the effect that I thought they were going to have. So now instead of fighting the fight for this issue, I'm going to spend all my time fighting the fight for this issue. And, yeah, that's fair dinkum. You know, he read, he absorbed, he understood, he still is an advocate, but he's now an informed advocate and he's, you know, not going to denigrate his side by, you know, chasing uh, white elephants. That's a mixed yeah, metaphor, but yeah. yeah, I think it comes across. No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I read that review on Amazon as 
in, in, in terms of doing show prep. So, you know, so what, what, what is it that you not being affiliated with a party, this sort of walk away movement, one of the things I asked you in the um, lead up to the show was about this. I, I would, I, I want to hear hear your data analysis on this, but this um, um, increase in skepticism towards, in particular, towards the federal government that started in, let's say, the, the Clinton years, um, and was, in my understanding centered around Ruby Ridge and then Waco and led into uh, the Oklahoma City bombings uh, or bombing, I should say. And so in the 90s, this this belief that, you know, the, the centralized power didn't have your and my best interest at heart, also potentially to the start of the walkaway movement or just a general saying, like, I'm not Republican, I'm not Democrat. And are the two correlated? Is there a, is, is that about the same time that both that they that they kicked off? Well, they did, but the the secret sauce is the internet. Uh, as a backstory, I spent all of my formal career in the high tech industry. Uh, not to sound like I'm bragging, but my first job out of college was writing software at Kennedy Space Center, so I was into it up to here. The internet started to become commercialized in the 1990s. Uh, this allowed mm -hmm. the free sharing of information between individuals. You no longer went through gatekeepers in the mainstream media. There's always been a tight coordination between the mainstream media and people in politics. Uh, the, the political media complex, it's been named. There's even a Wikipedia web page on that. And so political the state... Yeah, the, the fifth estate, we, the hoi polloi, have taken over the narrative from the fourth estate. And it's through the sharing of data and repetitious exposure of the propagandist and how they work that has led some people, you know, to this state of disenchantment where they don't believe any of the elites in power. And, you know, that, that generally is a healthy thing. I may have helped accelerate it. I wrote a book a long time ago called Shooting the Bull, which basically just looked at the misinformation in the gun control arena. But what that book was, was it was actually a tutorial on how to do propaganda analysis in real time. And the fact hmm. that I wrote a book on propaganda analysis and didn't tell anyone it was a book on propaganda analysis was probably in its own way, a bit of propaganda. But um, the whole point was I was part of that internet-based movement, which said we have to be skeptical and critical about everything we're being told because we're often not being told the truth. And you were learning also, I think at the time you're like, okay, cool. You're, you're getting a connected whether the person is in north carolina north dakota northern california like there is there's a sense that like popcorn where these different um yeah people are people are waking up and 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 they're able to connect online and find uh kindred souls let's say and uh and not feel so isolated in their skepticism towards yeah, t towards uh, towards some of the narratives that they're uh, that they're being uh, fed. That's a bad summary. Bear with me. So, 
when you look at the yeah when you look at gun policy now what is your ideal state like what is the or what what what, what yeah if you if you were made benevolent dictator how would you architect uh, gun policy well <clears throat> i wouldn't <laughs> we at gun packs we, we at gun facts are rather an odd duck in that we almost never talk about policy we don't advocate one way or the other we don't say that this is great or this is bad the closest we ever come is we say what you're proposing probably isn't going to work the way that you think it will here's the data that indicates that what I will say is that after 25 years of grinding through the data, and criminologists have identified this as well, the fact is that in the United States, at least, gun violence is extremely localized. We, at the end of last year, did a major research project. We studied gun violence down to the county level. We tested against 24 different variables. And what you see right off the top is that 25% of gun homicides in this country occur in just 15, one five counties. We have over 3,100 counties in this country. In any given year, about half of the counties have no gun homicides whatsoever. Uh, now, granted, a lot of those counties, you know, are basically empty. They have more cattle than they have people. But it still goes to show that most of the country is violence-free. 15 counties account for a quarter of all the gun violence. So from a policy standpoint, what I would say is this is what we need to pay attention to in terms of gun yeah. homicides. What makes these 15 counties different? And we tested against those 24 variables, and what we found was all of these counties have high street gang participation rates. All of these counties have substandard police staffing, so there aren't as mm. many patrol officers on the street. As a side effect of understaffing both patrol officers and detectives, they also have extremely low homicide clearance rates, which means they never figure out who pulled the trigger. Uh, they don't even develop a lead suspect. So those two factors. A lot of street gangs, very little policing, cause 15 counties to just become war zones. And it's always the same culprit year after year. Cook County, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, South Central. Then when you zoom in on these counties and you, you know, try to develop a homicide heat map, what you discover is that it's concentrated still further. So concentrated first into 15 violent counties and inside of these, each of these 15 violent counties, very specific small neighborhoods where the killing happens every single day. So if politicians actually gave a damn about poor people of color, they would be staffing police and staffing courts and trying to get, you know, these predators off of the streets uh, and save the innocent people who are just trying to get through the day alive in those neighborhoods. But the fact is that politicians only care about poor people of color at election time because the only thing a poor person yeah. can give them is their vote. And after the election is over, they go back to hobnobbing with you know the rich people who finance their election. 
And until that mindset changes, until the mothers and the fathers in these poor neighborhoods go and stand on people's desk and scream in their face until they get adequate policing, it's not going to change. And what, do you want to talk briefly about uh, the summer of Floyd, let's say, and the response there as far as, yeah, the uh, the even further staffing of policing or even the, even the narrative around police being so negative that recruitment in a lot of these cities probably dried up. What, what happened in, uh, um, in, in response to the BLM riots? Well, there was a lot of de-policing, uh, whether it was intentional or side effect. I have, right here under my left hand, I have two criminology papers I've read, but I haven't distilled into, um, content for the website yet. But, both of them study what they call either the Ferguson effect or the Minneapolis effect. And it's basically saying what happens when there are fewer police on the street. During 2020, we had the George Floyd riots. So there was more activity on the street. But we also had COVID. And a lot of police officers pulled back from the public, not because of the riots, but because they were under orders not to engage people unnecessarily to help prevent the spread of COVID. We can debate whether that was rational policy or not, but a lot of officers pulled back because of that. Then there's this general and rather weird statements being made by people that, you know, cops are evil, we need to defund the police, blah, blah, blah. A lot of police became demoralized, and so even if they stayed on the force, they weren't, you know, going to stick their necks out in certain situations. Well, anyway, these two academic papers both measured uh, the rate of increase of violence vis-a-vis the rate of police pullback, and the cause and effect, uh, statistically speaking, was significant. Uh, may not be the only cause, but the fact is that when police pull back out of the public, this allows people who have criminal ways, criminal intent, criminal lifestyles, if you will, to be out on the streets and doing their uh, doing their business. One interesting bit of data, which has been popping up on my radar screen a lot lately, is that street gangs are notorious for public crime. There's gun violence of all sorts of varieties, but street gangs do all of their business out in public, whether it's stealing drugs or whether it's shooting rival gang members. So when you take the police off of the streets and out of the patrol cars, street gang members have absolutely no fear of being caught, apprehended, charged, thrown into prison. And so when the policing is low, the gang activity in public is high. Hmm. Hmm. And and is there a distinction? Yeah, when you talk about gun violence and you're talking about these street gangs, I'm assuming, and this might be wrong, I'm assuming that they uh, acquired the weapons, acquired the guns illegally to begin with, right? These are uh, these are not legally possessed guns that they're using um, in their in their crimes. That's that's correct. A Bureau of Justice Statistics about every decade. Um, does a study and to find out where crime guns came from. Last one they did was in 2016, so I'm looking forward to 2026. In that, they discovered that a rock-bottom minimum 
of 43% of crime guns come from street sources. Not from gun shows, not from retail, not from buying it you know, through a straw man purchase. They came from street sources. Another 17%, which makes the math handy, come from what euphemistically called other sources. But, you know, this is includes things like a different criminal brought the gun to the scene and then the perpetrator who actually pulled the trigger used his buddy's gun, something like that. So between the two, that's uh, 60% right there of crime guns coming from completely unregulatable sources. Contrast this with 10% of crime guns coming from retail, and that includes pawn shops and gun shows. Mm. So we see right off the bat this huge disparity, this many from you know what we can regulate, this many from what we cannot regulate. So from a policy standpoint, does, the interest yeah, go where ahead. does the other 30%? Yeah, where does the other 30% go? In uh, you've got 10% that come from retail and 60 from um yeah these other two these two sources go ahead the the next biggest bucket is 27 percent, and it's what's called personal transfers uh and this does include a lot of different things which unfortunately there's not a good statistical breakdown this includes people who did legal sales but the gun ended up being sold to somebody who was legal to own one but then committed a crime probably a small number. This includes straw men sales, uh, which is a known felonious activity. Uh, this also includes wink nudge. You know, we're going to give Vinny a gun. We know he's not allowed to own one, but you know, he ticked off some people with a mob and he needs some protection, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so 27% come from people to people transfers, but there's some unknown portion of that which are known felonious activities. And that is a mm -hmm. piece of data I would love to have. Cannot find it anywhere. I don't think it's uh, remotely possible to study that without just, you know, some criminologists receiving a huge grant from somebody. I mean, this quite mm -hmm. seriously is probably a three quarter of a million dollar study. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so then, so, yeah, so let's assume that, uh, I don't know. Um, maybe one one out of ten or three out of ten are from either nominally le legal or nominally nominally legal sources. Is that a fair assumption? Somewhere between one and three out of ten. Yeah, we'll we'll say on the high end uh, between the twenty seven and ten percent. On the high end, thirty seven percent either come from legal sources or personal transfers, some of which may be legal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so then when, 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 when gun control is talked about, how do I say this in a non judgmental way, but when you have a discussion that's taking place and you see the imagery or the, yeah, the numbers that are given around, uh, advocating for gun control and the, the 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 story that's told. Let's say that it's um, um, like the, uh, the the family in Missouri who is standing on their front porch during the riots, and that one of them was holding a, um, an AR-15, and they're painted as this uh, um, you know somebody to be demonized 
like what what is what what did what what do, what's the difference between the two like what's the demographics if it's race based if it's also like income based like who who is actually committing a lot of the crimes and how does that square with the uh uh the narrative of who who gun control advocates are supposedly going after right that that is an interesting and tricky question but there are some clean answers to it you can go to the Center for Disease Control and see who gets shot. This is, oddly enough, more reliable than trying to ask who did the shooting because a lot of murders just simply go unsolved. But we can tell, you know, who's laying on the slab in the coroner's office. And what you see is that there are outrageous skewings between urbanization race and age that tweaked my interest a long time ago because way back in the early part of this century uh the federal government had created the national gang center and they spent a lot of time studying what are street gangs who are in them why they do what they do blah 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 and they had demographic profiles of your typical street gang members uh and so i took each of those variables and I said, okay, we know from the data that, for example, white people mainly kill white people, black people mainly kill black people, Hispanics mainly kill Hispanics. So as a proxy, we're going to look at who died and map it against the street gang profiles. And we're going to ask, you know, you know, is there some sort of rational correlation here? And what you see from the chart, and we've got one beautiful chart up on our site, is that if you are between the ages of 14 and 24 and you're African-American and you live in a city, your odds of getting shot are miles above everybody else. So while we were doing this research, we said, okay, we know a lot about gangs. How can we, you know, find adjunct measures? Well, there was a documentary out that talked about just the war between the Crips and the Bloods, which started way back in the 1980s uh, out in Los Angeles. In the 30-year war between just those two gangs, they estimate that there have been about 15,000 murders. To give you perspective about this, during the entire 20-year Afghan war, we lost 2,400 service members, 2,400 versus 15,000. So Just between two gangs in one city. Well, no, two, these gangs are now national, so you know they, they're okay. racking up points in every big city. But just those two gangs, and keep in mind that there are plenty of gangs, and you will see – that there's higher rates among young male urban Hispanics, young male urban whites, even though demographically that's a small number. And so the correlation between the gun homicides and gang activity seems to be a high order of magnitude. Uh, I don't recall our calculations, but using an R-squared uh, correlation measure, I think we came up with the idea that, you know, you could explain about 85% of gun homicides just on street gangs. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You touched on something 
on gun facts that I was reading earlier, and it's also in in line with that. Fourteen, if you're ages of fourteen and twenty four, and you're black, and you live in a city, you're I don't know what the order of magnitude is, but you're much higher uh, at your, your risk. Your risk is uh, much higher to be shot. The one that I read about on gun facts, I'd like you to talk about is this uh, children and guns narrative, and that. That is also one where how people like define child number one, whether it's from birth to seventeen or birth to thirteen, and then you have teenagers, and then also where the teenager or where the where where the child lives and their race that those three factors alone really really influence. Yeah, they, they changed the outcome of that statement and that saying like, uh, um, I, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase. I think it's that um, children, yeah, if you're a child in the U.S., you're, well, fill me in on this. You're, 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 the, the biggest risk hey, to, your, to your safety is a, is a gun. I don't know how to phrase it, but something along those lines. They're, they're, they're saying incorrectly that guns are the leading killer of children in America. Thank you. Here's And this particular meme ticks me off in ways that I'm rarely ticked off. Um, in both the criminology and the epidemiology field, there is a clear and bright dividing line between children, people who have yet to reach puberty, and teenagers. And there's really good reasons for having that bright line because anyone who has had teenage children underfoot will tell you that they are occasionally uh, – caustic, antagonistic, uh, uncivilized beings. Uh, And that's part of being a teenager. That's part of growing up. So the behavior patterns of children who mainly stay at home, who mainly stay in their own little tight neighborhood, and who haven't been exposed to, you know, some of the horrors of the world and aren't, you know, pushing the envelope and challenging parental authority, they are much different than teenagers, and you take uh, a child who grows up in the inner city in the tough neighborhoods where trust basically is zero for between anybody about anything. Uh, there was a wonderful paper called A Heaven of Our Own, which you know delved into inner city uh, psychology. And you know, one of the statements in there was, if you live in this neighborhood, everyone rips off everyone else. So you take a child, you raise them in that kind of environment, and they become a teenager – they may not have a father figure. He may be dead from gang violence. He may be in prison, et cetera, et cetera. And you now have fraternity with other males in a street gang. Your path into a violent lifestyle is almost predestined. So we have to treat children and teenagers as different elements. And we have a chart in the page titled Children and Guns, which maps out gun and non-gun death rates for all ages except for zero through one. And it shows that up until age 14, basically no one dies from guns. Here in America, in terms of accidental gun deaths, the gun death rate for children is one child per state per year. So about 50 children accidentally die from guns every year for a population of over 350 million. That's 
that's so low, it's not even statistical noise. It is functionally zero. You get up to age 14 and above, and suddenly that curve for gun deaths goes way up, and it's all highly urban, and it's all highly race-based, and it's all highly associated with low income. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And I think that that's what's upsetting to me is that I think it's disingenuous when I hear phrases about uh, that we're passing this legislation for the kids or that, uh, um, you know, one death is one too many. And it's sort of like, it, it's, it's, it's very emotion based as opposed to fact based or reason based. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, you have a background in psychology and I think sociology as well, at least in terms of your understanding of both, whether or not you studied them, I don't know. But this emotion-based yeah, emotion policy narratives versus fact-based policy narratives. And what I mean by that is that um, immediately following a horrific shooting that's on the news that the politicians have um, – uh, latched onto for lack of a better way to put it there is an emotion-based push for some sort of gun control now whether that gun control actually deals with the heinous act that they claim to be trying to stop is i would say pretty negligible but the yeah what what is going on with this like this emotion-based policy narrative versus a reasoned or a fact-based um, approach to some of these things? Well, in my book, Shooting the Bull, where we discuss propaganda techniques, uh, the very first one was the lie of fear. Fear is an interesting topic in a lot of ways. And the reason that politicians like to use the lie of fear is that fear will push you past critical thinking and into action. I mean, it, when you are scared, you want a solution and you want it yesterday. And anything that sounds remotely plausible, what I call believable superstition, mm. is something that people will latch on to. So if you're in favor of gun control and something horrific happens in some little corner of the country and you can make people scared, you will get at least a few adherents to your policy. But, you know, just to make sure that we play both sides of the street, I spend way too much time on Twitter and the pro-gun crowd there, they always talk about the government taking your guns away, which is also, you know, a fear tactic. Maybe a legitimate one, I don't know, but the fact is emotions cause people to take action in the short term. Logic and reason causes people to not take action in the long term. And so if you're a champion of reason and data and rational thinking and critical thinking, you know, it's you got to play the long game. You got to just, you know, wear down your opponent with intel. Uh, when I am on Twitter, one of the things I'm painfully aware of when I correct somebody is that I'm not going to change their mind and I'm not actually trying to change their mind. But people watching that thread are going to see the hard data and they're going to become rationally skeptical. 
And that's what I yeah. wish about any person in any field of political thinking, be rationally skeptical. You don't have to be a yeah. denier. You don't have to be a disbeliever. You just have to go, well, what does the data really tell us? Yeah, I think that's that, that, um, yeah, that, that, uh, that rational skepticism. Yeah, I, I, I think it's admirable um, spreading it. Let's, uh, let's say, right, like little seeds of it across, across Twitter on these, uh, these different threads. One of the other well, and, topics and, you go and just, and, and just to tick somebody off a little bit, there's a fellow by the name of Michael Schumer. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he heads the Skeptic Society. Uh, he has a podcast, you know, which is all about skeptical thinking. Well, one day on Twitter, he he put up an anti-gun meme, which just had really bad data. And I couldn't help myself. And I replied and I said, Michael, you need to actually be skeptical, <laughs> you know, which was like twisting the knife in the wound. And then I provided him a link to my book. I said, get me on your show. Let's actually talk about the hard data. Zero response. So here's a guy who professes to be a skeptic posting memes that are completely incorrect, and he hasn't taken the time to check even the most basic facts. And then when somebody says, hey, let's have an adult discussion about this because I think you're going off in a non-skeptical direction, you know, he, he doesn't echo back. So even among people you know, who – present themselves as rational, skeptical thinkers, you're going to find chinks in the armor. Yeah. I think in his case, it would be maybe intellectually honest if he messaged you privately and says, hey, I don't want to have you on the show, but he deletes the post or deletes the thing that uh, was uh, was incorrect, right? And, um, and at least yeah. acknowledges your effort, you know? <clears throat> Yeah, well, so that honesty is, is a big thing. I mean, there there was a post that we did on Twitter one day, and we fat fingered it. We didn't present bad information, but we you know stated it in such a way that caused you know, a dozen people to think the wrong thing. We had the option of deleting that post to save embarrassment, but we didn't. We we created a thread and we said, "Wow, we made a mistake by using sloppy language." Here's the data more clearly explained. This is what we were trying to communicate. I would value people who leave their post and then explain why the communication failed than anything else. That is, to me, uh, the height of integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Then, 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 then as a community, people can learn and they can see both sides of it, right? Or all yeah. sides, let's say. Yeah. Another area that you go into on uh, gun facts I found very interesting was around the, I think you used the term deinstitutionalization as far as mental health care goes. Yeah, yeah. I see you nodding and smiling. Deinstitutionalization coupled with this increasing uh, use of uh, what are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, coupled with yeah, this the Werther effect, for lack of a better way to put it, which is this uh, this copycat phenomenon of um, of uh, school shootings. Do you want to talk about how all these things inter interrelate from a data perspective? Yeah, I will. But I'll put up a proviso in that there's 
data fragility in some places. Uh, mass public shootings, which has a strict definition of four plus people killed, not including the perpetrator, in a public place in a single event. They, those are very few. There's one or two a year on average. But they're horrific and they're frightening because you can't prepare for that. Uh, you, We all know not to go to the ATM at three in the morning. We know where the sketchy neighborhoods are and we avoid them. We tend not to have mates who are, you know, gratuitously violent. But we can't control for mass public shooters. Yeah, that's that's why they are scary. So anyway, back in the 1980s, I was so surprised to find this. I found it in academic papers. The psychological community or the psychiatric community initiated deinstitutionalization, which means that they felt a lot of people who are institutionalized, think one flew over the cuckoo's nest, um, shouldn't be there that they would have better outcomes, better mental health improvements if they were forced to stay in society and deal with the ebb and flow of daily life. I won't second guess them on that. It sounds intuitively reasonable, you know, to keep people uh, engaged with other human beings as part of therapy. But all the people who want to blame it on one party or another or one politician or another get it wrong. It was the psych community who said, let's have fewer psychiatric beds. And the politicians said, oh, we can save a boatload of money by shutting down psychiatric beds. Here's the scary data. From the early 1980s to today, we have shuttered about one third of the psychiatric beds in America all while the population was increasing. Uh, I did. I failed to do the math when I was doing that, but you know we can come to the conclusion that effectively nearly half of the people who may have gotten treatment before are not getting the same kind of treatment. One of the reasons the psychiatric community th thought they could do this is that in the early 1980s, there were several new classes of psychotropic medications one of those being the SSRIs that you pointed out. So their ideal stated too coarsely was, let's send these people home with a pocket full of pills, tell them to take their meds, and tell them to show up for counseling once a week. Well, people with mental health problems are not the most reliable human beings. The number one reason people stop taking psychotropic medications is that they simply don't like the way it makes them feel. So this causes two problems. You have people with mental fragility who quit taking their meds. Some of them cold turkey withdraw, and the labels on SSRIs and other medications say, whatever you do, do not do a cold turkey withdrawal. You have to taper off of your meds slowly. Here's a scary bit. Columbine shooters, basement tapes. One of them, one of the two perps, clearly stated on the basement tape that he was going to do a cold turkey withdrawal from his SSRI in order to amp up his rage on the day of the event. So it's back in the late 1990s, it was a well-known phenomenon, well-known to the point that a mass murderer used it as a tool to carry out uh, his activities. So what we see with deinstitutionalization, uh, afterwards, we see a rise in the homeless population 
and I really want to study this, but finding quality data is tough. Uh, and we also see a steady rise in mass public shootings. Now, this isn't to say that deinstitutionalization alone is the cause of either of these, but given a different study that we did, uh, the reported rates of adverse effects from psychotropic medications, according to an FDA database, there's a 70 plus percent correlation between the reported adverse effects from these medications and mass public shootings. Now, there's a lot of problems with the data. I would not want anyone to stake their reputation on that. But you see psychiatric beds go down. You see mass public shootings and homelessness go up, even while the economy is booming, even while life in general becomes more meaningful and interesting. And I have to believe that that's contributory in at least a large way. Excellent. Okay. I mean, tragic, excellent, both excellent analysis and also a, a tragic story. I think that part of that story, part of that story, which you touched on also is if I'm, yeah, let's, I, let's assume that I have uh, mental health, mental health issues. I'm handed SSRIs and there are few, as far as I understand, there are few mechanisms by which to check that I actually, like there's nobody who comes around and checks on me. It's sort of, it's sort of voluntary that I then go to um, uh, counseling. It's also voluntary that I continue to take the meds. It's voluntary that I tell the truth, let's say to this, uh, to this counselor. And there's a, if it's a pendulum that swung from at a, you know, prior to one flew over the cuckoo's nest to this person is clearly a danger to himself and other people. And we are going to commit him. It may be even involuntarily to, we are now going to shutter the entire apparatus, not just the beds, but the entire apparatus around involuntary, you know, involuntarily committing somebody coupled with, now we're going to make it all voluntary that you do the prescribed treatment. Yeah. It seems like a recipe for disaster insofar as just like, there's just a tremendous amount of yeah places for, uh, for people to fall through the cracks in that sort of, uh, in that sort of scenario. Yeah. If, if somebody is institutionalized and we won't for the moment debate whether they should or shouldn't be, but if they are, then you have daily 24 hour day observations, supervision, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you remember the scene out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, the fellow walks up to the med window and nurse Cratchit, you know, gives him his meds and then says, open your mouth and show me under your tongue. And he goes like that to prove they actually swallowed the medications. Then, you know, you have some degree of control over the situation. Somebody going home, like you say, it's perfectly voluntary at that point. You know, the ability to fall through the cracks and then to do things that are ill-advised, such as cold turkey withdrawals, just goes through the roof because there is no hands-on supervising. If you have a family yeah. member, you know, who lives with you and will, you know, prompt you and proctor you, you know, the 
chance of uh, doing things correctly goes way up. But we've seen at least a couple of mass shootings where people were under psychiatric care who had been prescribed medications, who had family members and still carried out the act. The most notable of recent history was the one in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, at the Christian Elementary School. That person had talked to their counselor at her parents' insistence the day before. So even though she wasn't institutionalized and maybe should have been, they were at least trying to do as much hands-on as they could. But this was a case of somebody who was enough off the rails that the psychiatrist in charge may have made a mistake by not insisting on institutionalization. And psychiatrists, I think, are a little bit like engineers. I, I have a phrase called the arrogance of engineers, which is that they think they know a subject so well that you know they make just a pointless or well not pointless, but incorrect analysis because they're so sure of what they know. The Challenger space shuttle blew up because of the arrogance of engineers. I think psychiatrists may be the same way. They may see a person who really does need to be institutionalized, but they are so deep into their own belief of their knowledge of the situation of psychiatric care of the efficacy of certain medications that they believe that they have it under control when it's not. How does that tie in with, yeah, for those who aren't familiar before I ask this question. So if you, one of the things that's come out in some of these mass public shootings is mental health records being sealed off from the public or being sealed off from examination. And it's also something you talked about on gun facts, which is some of these people who they never, yeah, they're, 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 their medical rights, a very weird dynamic where like under medical privacy legislation, I don't know if it's HIPAA or something else, there is this tendency towards, we're not going to allow somebody's medical history to be exposed to the public Maybe buried in there are some clues as to what happened or didn't happen. We're also going to – so that's sacrosanct. Their medical history sacrosanct. It also then kind of it means that the psychiatrist is then not held to account because they're not actually uh, examined as far as um, the, 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 what's in that person's file or at least not publicly examined. So how does it – yeah, as as somebody who looks at this, is it possible? It's a very leading question, but is it possible? Yeah, what what do you do around trying to actually get to the medical histories and this and the psychiatric files for some of this stuff so that it, you can get to the the root of um, what's happening here? Well, here's a twofer. As a quick aside, there's an organization called the Violence Project, and they were kickstarted by the federal government, if I remember, because of their insane level of funding, they have had unprecedented access to the background of mass public shooters. They run into the same problem. You know, the laws prevent them from walking up and, you know, getting like the pharmaceutical history of a shooter. 
but they fly out and they talk to everyone who knows the shooter. And so they pick up a lot of data on the side, such as the parents of a shooter said, oh, yeah, he was taking this medication. Here's the prescription slip. You know, so they get some data that way. It's my personal belief, and I won't say this on behalf of gun facts, but it's my personal belief that the laws need to change, at least for mass public shootings, but maybe even for all homicides, that the perpetrator's background, criminal background, medical background, psychological background, pharmaceutical background, all needs to become open sourced as part of due process. If if mm-hmm. you're willing to kill a bunch of strangers, you forego your place, your privacy to uh, med- to medical privacy. Exactly, and the Constitution says you can be disbarred of any right, including the right to continue breathing, as long as you get due process. And I think if you're a mass public shooter, um, either dead on the spot or convicted in a court later, we open source your background. And the reason I say that is that you can't solve a problem unless you understand a problem. And we can't understand the problem unless we have all the information. And so these laws do get in the way of perfecting our knowledge and thus finding solutions. And so how, how does this impact uh, legislation around red flag laws? Because that's also partially what is brought up as one of the solutions, and I want to use air quotes around that, but solutions as far as keeping guns out of the hands of people who are deemed to be dangerous. Yeah. I need to redo a study that we did. We we looked at red flag laws, but we did it at a time when there were only two states that had had red flag laws long enough for us to do a real before and after look at the data. Uh, those two states were Indiana and Connecticut. What we discovered was that red flag laws make absolutely no difference in terms of homicides. Uh, And this kind of makes sense because people who commit homicides either do it as part of a criminal lifestyle or they do it very spontaneously, you know, kind of hothead moments. Uh, Very few people do a premeditated, you know, Agatha Christie kind of murder. So the red flag laws don't affect homicides whatsoever. What caught our attention, though, was in Indiana, red flag laws made no difference in terms of suicides, but in Connecticut, they did. And so we looked at the two laws and we said, what's happening? What's different? Well, in Indiana, cop comes, takes your guns away, and then he leaves. Well, if you're having a mental health crisis or a substance abuse crisis and they take your guns away and you have suicidal ideation, you just find a different way to do it. Suffocation is the number two form of suicide in the country, and it's going up at a rate faster than gun suicides are going up. So in Indiana, people kept killing themselves. In Connecticut, when the cop comes and takes your gun away, he gets to make a snap decision as to whether you're having mental health or substance abuse issues. And he gets to put you in the squad car and take you to the hospital where you get an immediate, and I mean like within inside of a couple of hours, evaluation by a qualified medical professional. In Connecticut, mm-hmm. half of the people, if I remember the data correctly, half the people who got taken to the hospital got referred on for either psychiatric or substance abuse treatment. Think about that. Half of the people they took guns away from 
who had possible suicidal ideation were suddenly getting help. Of those people who got forwarded for help, if I remember correctly, only 24% of them had ever had any kind of help before. So in other Mm. words, in Connecticut, they did something very human. They said, you obviously need help. We're going to get you some help. And their suicide rate went down. And it's not because they took the guns away. That was just kind of like a starting point. It's because they got actual real treatment. So red flag laws kind of get painted as, you know, uh, uh, the godsend, the mother of the, the you know, ultimate thing. But we're talking about a fractional part of the society. We're talking about one half of that, the homicides being completely irrelevant. And then the last part, the suicides, you got to factor in the handholding. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's, it's a meaningless gesture. Yeah, it's interesting. There's two things that come up when you say that. One is it's red flag red flag laws, RFLs, are not painted, publicly speaking, as a suicide prevention tool. They're painted as being passed for stopping, you know, stopping homicides, let's say, or, 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 or yes, stopping violence and not uh, and violence against other people, not necessarily violence against yourself. So it's they're actually beneficial for stopping suicides insofar as there is also treatment recommended or perhaps um, forcibly given if the uh, police officer makes the decision in Connecticut to uh, put that person in the squad car and take them to a hospital that uh, um, that flow out of it. So there was another one on gun facts that I was reading that I thought was super interesting, which is also around suicide, that is concentrations of highly catholic areas have a lower suicide gun suicide rate than other areas do you want to talk about that or how how did i butchered that one but i think you know which uh, piece i'm describing yeah yeah um i'm rarely surprised by data because i've been at this for so long but one day on twitter you know somebody had mentioned that massachusetts had strict gun control and and low gun death rates. I looked at the suicide data and I said, well, you know, mainly they have lower suicide rates. And, you know, we all know that due to substitution of means that, you know, that gun laws are kind of irrelevant there. And somebody else chimed in and said, well, yeah, but they're also heavily Catholic and it's against the catechism. And I went, okay, I've been trying to study what is the social psychology aspects to violence, but what are the social psychology aspects to suicide? Because attitudes Mm -hmm. towards suicide are radically different around the world. With inside of America are there pockets of different attitudes towards suicide. So I found reliable data sources that told me what percentage of each state were all the different religious denominations. and it plays out mathematically that if a state is higher in Catholics or higher in Eastern religions, definitely higher in Buddhist religions, that the suicide rate is lower and it's lower for whatever means, whether it's guns, suffocation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this got interesting because I spent 22 years in California in the San Francisco area during Gavin Newsom's political ascendancy 
Quick aside, Gavin Newsom has only two talents. One is propaganda and the other one's being smug. And he's lousy at propaganda and he's way too good at being smug. So I went digging in and California is almost a model for low suicides based on social attributions. The highest gun suicide rate is among old rural white males. Let me repeat that because it's a phenomenal statement. Old men living in rural areas are most likely to shoot themselves of any other demographic. And it kind of makes sense. If you're old and your kids have moved off to the city, you're socially isolated, uh, you lived a rural lifestyle, so you're probably not rich and you're going through old age financial issues. You may have lost your spouse. You may have some sort of hard illness or even a terminal illness, and you've always had this stand on your own two feet mentality, uh, you're going to check out. And if you've owned guns your whole life, well, that's going to probably become your top choice because you know how mm. they work. You know what they can do. California has near the bottom of the list of old people uh, per capita for any other state, near the bottom of the list for white people as state, four of their cities make up most of their population, so they're heavily urban, not rural, and their rate of Catholicism and Eastern religions is, I believe, the high, nearly the highest in the country. So demographically, mm -hmm. their suicide rate is real low just because of social functions and demographics. But if you hear Not Gavin because of Newsom, gun control laws. Right. Yeah. You know, he goes, well, we have the fewest gun death, gun death rates, but that includes suicides. When I did that same study, I said, OK, well, let's just see who's dying from gun homicides. California is right in between. Right in between. Kansas and Colorado in terms of gun homicide rates. Colorado has lightweight gun control. Kansas, they hand you an AR-15 at the visitor center on the interstate when you come into town, you know. But yet they're all in this nice little tight cluster in terms of homicide rates. So, you know, if gun control laws by themselves were the issue, then California would not be anywhere near Colorado and Kansas. Fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to talk as well? Like, I think these topics are super interesting. The, um, let's say the hidden hand of some of this data, you know, the, uh, the, the, the things that are unexplored the things that, uh, um, the substructure of which is, uh, driving, um, driving some of this. When you look at, yeah, when you look in at the states and you look at different states, is there one like is there is there a movement that you see whether it's yeah, whether it's permitless carry, whether it is you have you have this divergence. You have you have let's say red states and blue states and red states going more in the favor of making constitutional carry or permitless carry and then you have blue states which are more in favor of passing uh, gun control, you know, gun taxes, different different types of gun control in different ways and formats. Like, is there one policy that both sides would agree to that actually has a, de a demonstrable effect as far as 
yeah, like let's say let's 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 assume that we're looking for gun. We want to we want to reduce gun violence. Yeah, well, let's just say we want to reduce gun violence. Like, what 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 is a what what is a policy that uh, that both sides should get behind? Bluntly speaking, it's incarcerating bad actors. Um, okay. There is a beautiful chart up on gun facts. And by the way, for your listeners, uh, if you click on any chart on the gun facts website, you'll get a larger version of it. And our copyright is that as long as you don't change the graphic, you're free to share it. So by all means, copy the graphics, put them on Facebook, put them on Twitter. You know, you're free to do so. So we have one chart which shows a bit of American history that very, very, very few people are aware of. From 1993, for four years, 24 of our 50 states, nearly half of them, all passed habitual offender laws. Now, to remind the older people in the crowd, violent crime in America was going steadily up through the 1970s, through the 1980s, and into the 1990s. Violent crime was out of control. It was especially out of control in California. It was California was 40% higher than national average for violent crime. So from 1993, 94, 95, and 96, half of the country passed habitual offender laws because the criminology data showed that people who commit one crime are going to commit a dozen crimes. And this includes violent crimes. The Violent crime rate nosedived and has stayed low ever since. You take bad actors off the street, they quit doing bad things in public. They may also quit inculcating younger potential criminals into doing the same thing. To give you an idea of the scope of this, according to the California Legislative Analyst Office, I believe was their title, They looked at the first decade of their habitual offender law, which passed in 1993, and in the first decade, they they processed nearly 90,000 people. Imagine that. That's two football stadiums full of people who went to jail on two strikes or three strikes. And you take that many people off the street who have established records of repeat violent offenses, and the violence rate goes down. Big shock, big surprise. So let's go back toward the discussions that we had about 85% of gun homicides are likely street gang related or nexus. If we are to focus on street gangs who are littered with repeat violent offenders, and focused on those people almost to the exclusion of everything else and made sure that we got those bad actors off the street and out of the gangs, we could make a huge dent in violence. When we calculated the numbers, if we could magically wave a wand and get rid of just what we think are street gang-related nexus homicides, our homicide rate in the United States would be lower than almost all of the Western European nations, lower than Australia Mm. as well. So imagine that. We would have Mm. a lower homicide rate than France and Germany and Britain and Oz. So that's where we should be focusing our dollars and our efforts. But street gangs are tricky things to deal with. 
And it's going to require more money than the average taxpayer is going to want to spend to clean up that mess. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a second. So just so make sure I understand correctly, it, it we're talking about like two the two strike laws, three strike laws that basically say, you know, after your second uh, criminal offense, this is also like minimum sentencing rules as well that say uh, your third your third crime, whether it's breaking into a car or whatever, like you're gonna ca- you're gonna ca- you're gonna have at least you know, a certain period of time in prison uh, as a bare minimum. And it also part of the counter argument to that is that uh, it robs from the judges or the the juries, if they do any sentencing, um, the ability to decide how long that person should be going to jail. That's part of the, I've heard that as an argument against this, uh, like the, the, the risk, multiple strike. You had a, you had a, a clinical term for it. What is it called again? Sorry. Uh, habitual offender. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, on one hand, in one hand you go, okay, cool. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to lock up people who are habitual offenders. And how long are you looking at trying to lock them up for? Like they, they don't have a chance at getting out of prison or what is the, like, what does the data say around what, like how long should these people be taken off? Like that? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a very provocative question. I met uh, criminologist Gary Kleck on a couple of occasions, and one time he said something which kind of shocked me. He said, there's not much reason to keep man in prison past age 50 if he went in there on a violent crime offense. And that sounded ludicrous the first time I heard it. There's something about being young and male and stupid and running around with testosterone poisoning that causes you to do really stupid, violent things. After a while, the edge comes off, even if you've been sitting in prison for a couple of decades, and the probability of you committing another violent crime goes way, way down. It doesn't go down to zero, Mm. but it goes down. So Mm. the question is, you know, who should we send to prison? I think sending people to prison for drug possession on a three strikes thing is kind of dumb. But sending somebody to prison for a homicide when they had been, you know, convicted of a homicide before, you know, makes perfect sense. Question is, do you keep them there until they die or do you eventually let them out? And what I don't have is solid data on age-based recidivism rate. I know that data exists out there, but I haven't had the opportunity to go grab it and look at it and grind my own numbers. I suspect it's like a lot of other things in life. There's probably a real definitive logarithmic curve. And Cleck is probably right. There's probably a point in time that doesn't make sense to uh, suffer the expense of imprisoning somebody because the odds of them going and joining up with their homies and getting a gun and gratuitously shooting rival gang members has probably gone away. They've mellowed, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They're, um, the, the, one other topic, because Gary Kleck is uh, well known as in my mind around a defensive gun usage, what's called DGU. What does the data say 
Well, number one, are you able to find reliable data on it? There's a quite a, from what I understand, quite a bit of contention around DGU defensive gun usage being reported or not reported. And then what does that indicate as far as uh, lawful gun owners, people who have, you know, concealed carry permits or just have a, you know, legally possess a, a rifle or a shotgun at home? All right. A uh, lot of different questions there. The first one <clears throat> is that <laughs> a lot of criminologists, a lot of media organizations, and a lot of polling companies have all done surveys on defensive gun uses. And with the exception of one outlier, and Gary Kleck in one of his books went on for three pages explaining why no one should ever <laughs> cite this data source, but excluding that one outlier, the average of all of these is about 2 million defensive gun uses a year. And where a lot of the anti-gun crowd kind of gets mixed up is that they go and they look at legal intervention uh, homicides where somebody killed another person and it was a legal self-defense gun use. But the fact is there are a lot of ways to defend using a gun that don't even involve pulling the trigger. And so you have to survey people to find this out because a lot of these defensive gun uses never get reported to the cops. You know, you saw somebody on your property and you waved a gun and you said, get off my property or I'll shoot you. And he leaves. That's a defensive gun use. Uh, so two million times a year. And because so many different surveys from so many different types of organizations all center around this, I have a high level of confidence that that number is probably pristine. Uh, we should mm. we should definitely go with that. And that gets to both a issue about what we know about gun owners in general, but also what I'm beginning to perceive is a problem therein. Your average gun owner is pretty sane. Uh, your average gun owner, let me pull this up. Pew had some of the better research. Almost 70% of people who buy a gun buy it for protection. And these people nominally take it home, put it in their nightstand. They maybe go to the gun range once every five years. But otherwise, they're not doing anything stupid, rash, or wrong with their guns. So it's not a function of, you know, how many guns there are in their society. It's who has it. And if your average suburban couple has a revolver in the nightstand, who cares? You know, they're not, they're not causing any problems. One thing which was interesting was starting in 1988, we went through a huge national experiment. In 1988, only 10 states allowed you to carry guns in public. Today, uh, excluding the last holdout states who are fighting the recent Bruin decision, we're up to 42, and half of those are now permitless. You don't even need to get a ticket in order to carry a gun in public, providing that you're not prohibited. Throughout this entire period of people carrying guns in public, the violent crime rate plunged. Now, other people have said that the two are associated. They said because there's higher gun ownership rates and more people are carrying guns, that drove the crime rate down. I'm not bold enough to say that. But what I will say is that it obviously didn't cause any problems. 
things did not get worse because people were carrying guns in public. I mean, mathematically, that's easily demonstrable. But there is a side effect. Uh, I recently grabbed the most recent FBI data that lets me identify this. There is an amazing number of firearms that get stolen out of cars and trucks. Uh, it's <clears throat> something like 20,000 a year, which is real close to the number of crime guns that get uh, traced by the ATF every year. So as we have become more commonly carrying guns in public, more guns may have, I don't have the old data, so I may not be able to prove this, but it's likely that more guns than ever before are being stolen out of cars. That's not a statement, I believe, of irresponsible gun ownership. It's a statement of the fact that if you do have a CCW, a concealed carry permit, and you drive somewhere and you know you're not allowed to carry a gun in the premise, you are forced to keep it in your car. Very few people are going to go the extra step of getting a lock safe that sits in their trunk where they lock up the gun. They're just going to put it in the glove compartment, go into the post office. Why you're not allowed to carry in a post office? You know, that's a big question. But they're going to run in, do their tasks, come back out, and they discover that, yeah, there's some thug who sits there and watches people in the parking lot, and they walk up, smash the window, take the gun. So we've got, a, we've got an issue on the table, which I need to do more research on, but given that 20,000 guns get stolen out of cars every year is, is a considerable factor. Uh, and we talked earlier about 43% minimum of crime guns coming from street sources. These stolen guns out of cars may be one of the primary paths of guns entering the underground. <clears throat> yeah, again, so I, I would say unintended consequences of the rise in permitless carry, also CCW, means more people are carrying guns in public. They run into the what's called gun-free zones, the post office being one in your example, then they need to put the gun into their glove, their glove box, their, their uh, the compartment in their car, and you're seeing a rise in theft of guns. And then you're also seeing, when you look at the data, that the 43% of guns that are used in illegal, uh, well, like let, let, uh, street guns, as you called it, 43, th those are coming from sources like um, them being stolen from, from cars. Is that right? Like the whole circle, the whole circle there? Yeah. And, and the underground guns come from multiple different sources. And unfortunately, there's not a really good source of data that tells us all the different places that they come from. But 20,000 is a high number. Uh, that's a lot of guns to suddenly enter the underground. And so it's mm -hmm. definitely a policy area we need to pay attention to. The question is, how do you resolve that? It is this restriction of people being able to go through their normal daily activities and having to leave a gun in a car that's problematic. I talked to one guy because the laws differ from state to state, and he said, the most ridiculous night in his life was he went out to a restaurant and in this state, you could 
take your gun into a restaurant, even if the restaurant served alcohol, and sit down and have a meal. So he asked the waitress, where's the bathroom? And she said, oh, you walk through the bar and the restroom's on the other side. And he sighed because in his state, even though you could have your gun on you in the restaurant where they served alcohol, you could not carry the gun in the bar. So he literally had to walk out to his car, unholster, leave the gun in the car, walk back in, walk through the bar, take a whiz, walk back through the bar, back out to the car and get his gun. So I, as a general principle, we have to come to some understanding that if you're going to allow people to carry a gun as a normal part of their daily activities, you can't put up barriers to them executing their daily activities. There are sensitive places. I think it's probably wise not to let people carry guns in courthouses because the whole aspect of law is that people are in conflict with each other. But does that mean we should not let a parent carry a gun when they're picking up their kids at school? You know, as long as, you know, they have it securely holstered, what is the point of forcing them to leave the gun at home to pick up, you know, the kid when the school day is done. There's very little rationale to it. So I think that's a grand, we've we've got to come to grips with that. The the sensitive places may be causing a problem. Yeah. Do you want to talk about those sensitive places? Because the, yeah, gun-free zones are, a point of contention for both both uh, sides in in this debate, right? Well, like uh, some argue, well, one argument is we need more gun free zones. This should be expanded. Um, the problem is, is uh, um, there are too many places where people can carry weapons. The other argument is there's actually not enough places, and at the places that they need to be, uh, based on demonstrated, you know, history, it are places like schools, churches. I don't know, post offices, places that are, uh, let's say, politically um, sensitive and not necessarily sensitive in the way that a courthouse is, as you described it, because they're in conflict. Yeah. Let's look at this from the data side. Please. During there, There's two things that people worry about with people carrying in public, gun accidents and homicides. Using Texas as an example, and I use them because they are just anal retentive about collecting hard data on concealed carry permit holders and the crimes that they commit. People who go to the trouble of getting concealed carry permits almost never cause crimes. When I went through the data, the number of violent crimes committed by CCW holders in Texas was a mile below the number of violent crimes committed by off-duty police officers in Texas. Uh, So you get an immediate grasp of the situation. In fact, the number one crime committed by CCW holders uh, and a crime that would get your ticket taken away was inappropriate sexual relationships with a student, but that includes with inside of colleges. So basically, a couple of college professors doinked a co-ed and they, you know, got their CCW taken away from them. 
So from a homicide standpoint, and skewed the, and skewed the data for everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so from a homicide standpoint, you know, these sensitive places are just not showing up because the people with the CCWs just simply aren't pulling the triggers in ways that are endangering. The other is accidents. Well, look at the number of people who die from accidental gun deaths in this country. The rate has been falling like a stone as the number of people with CCWs goes up. So there's no correlation between the two. So these sensitive place laws are not addressing homicides. They're not addressing accidents because those are non-issues to begin with. So, you know, from a rational standpoint, ignore what you believe about guns and violence and everything else, but just from a purely numeric rational standpoint, you should probably have as few sensitive places as possible because it doesn't increase the level of harm. We demonstrate that from, you know, the Texas numbers and the other numbers. Doesn't create any harm, but forcing them to leave a gun in the car might be creating harm because it's leading to stolen guns. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've had you for almost an hour and a half, Guy. I think uh, we should wrap up. Is tell me, tell me how if people want to support gun facts, what is the way to do so? You're apolitical. Are you looking for donations? Are you looking for people to simply link to you, join your newsletter? What would you like, or what would you like the listeners to uh, to do for you? Well, kind of all of the above. Here's one thing that your listeners need to know: we do not take institutional money. Uh, we have been offered a big fat check by one of the three-letter abbreviation pro-gun groups, and we turn them down. We were offered a big fact check from the largest state affiliate of a different three-letter abbreviation pro-gun group. We turned them down. The anti-gun groups never offer us money, but that's, you know, we'd have to turn them down too. We exist strictly from individual donations. The average donation to gun facts, average one-time donation is $10.00. The average monthly tithe, because we do have a monthly, you know, a subscription, the average, I believe, is $6. So, as I like to say, we're poorer than your frugal monks. We we live on a shoestring. So, if anyone wants to support clear, unbiased data, drop us a dime. And if you got a PayPal account and you want to give us a dollar a month. I do have at least one donor who gives me a dollar a month. You know, subscribe up for that. The other thing that we would like you to do is use our charts. Go onto our site. And if you're having a discussion with someone online and we have a chart that's useful, click on it, get the big version, paste it into Facebook and Twitter. We brand all of our graphics. So the moment that you put it up there, it's kind of like free advertising for us. And and other than that, those two things are probably the most meaningful because our goal is not to make money, not to get rich. We barely pay the bills. We want people to have rational and informed discussions. And if you use our charts and if you use our factoids and you link to some of the studies we've done, 
to try to explain to people what we do and what we don't know about gun violence, then you are helping to engage the public in rational discourse. And that's, man, that's all we want. Amazing. Okay. All right. Thank you for your time. I'll see you on the next episode. Hi again, folks. If you enjoyed the show, I've got a favor to ask. Would you mind leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you've been listening to this podcast on? Every one of those helps. If you didn't like the show or if you've got feedback about it, let me know via the contact form on spreadgreatideas.org. I'd like to hear from you as far as what can be done to improve. Again, if you enjoyed the show, then please help out by spreading the word. If you didn't, let me know how to improve it. Thanks a lot for your attention, and I hope you'll check out the next one.